guys, what's up? For the past couple of weeks, on the Arc is Poly IG page, I follow a lot of student organizations, a lot of NOMAS, National Organization of Minority Architecture Students, as well as a couple of AIAS and a couple of universities, School of Architecture. And I've noticed a lot of letters. I think I've first noticed from the deans themselves about racial injustice. Some had commented on police brutality, acknowledging George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Then I heard from the students. And that is the most important voice, the students, especially those that are underrepresented in these institutions. I caught a IG live from NOMAS at RPI, Rensselaer Polytech Institute School of Architecture. And I just tagged along and I was just blown away. It's one thing for deans to acknowledge systemic racism and police brutality. It's another thing when I hear underrepresented students, black and brown students, at the School of Architecture and, you know, at the university themselves, quite honestly, but specifically under the School of Architecture, that their list of grievance was the same list I had when I graduated architecture school in 2005. That's 15 years ago. Can you believe that? Like the same thing that they are talking about is the same thing I talked about when I was in architecture school my struggles of identifying architecture, people who built architecture that looked like me, only to be considered as vernacular, and the theories of black and brown men and women not being told. They are also experiencing that as well. The two women, Kelsey and Malika, the advantage that they have is that they have a platform. And I wish I had one 15 years ago, but these things were non-existent back then. But now they have a platform. Now the students have a platform. And so when I see all these universities, all these schools of architecture students, all these NOMAS students, and a couple of AIAS students to specifically list the changes that needs to take place on the academic level. So I wanted to have that conversation with with these two women, and I'm very grateful that they chose to speak to me about it. So in the beginning of the episode, I kind of, just to get to know these women, because I, I, I didn't know them at all. It was just, this is a cold contact. So, you know, it was just like, hey, so what's your name? Where are you from? So the basic stuff and, you know, where they grew up. Why did they pick RPI? And why did you pick architecture? And then I started with the questions. We talked about, besides systemic racism, <laughs> I brought up the NAB statement on racial injustice. And I shared, I stated my opinion, and then they stated their opinion. So it was kind of, it was, it's an interest, it's not interesting. It's really, I can tell you right now, everybody else is making that statement Emphasis on the S. To me, it was a bunch of fluff. And we get into detail in this episode about it. 
And then lastly, I talked to them about the pandemic. What happened? How did their school handle it? So why did I pick RPI? I was just perusing IG and I caught their IG live. It was just that simple. I have no connection with RPI. I don't know. I've never visited the school. I know one or two, two people that actually went there. Yeah. So there was no reason for me to pick that school at all out of the a vast majority of NOMA chapters. And I, I didn't even know I was going to talk about this till I found that IG live. So kudos to them for even posting it and, you know, all the others that I've totally missed. So I, I'm hoping that this would make a change, that this would stick, that they would actually listen and change. Again, I am very, I'm optimistic. I'm not, I, I, I think optimistic is a too loose of a word. I'm more leaning towards nothing's going to change. I, I, I feel like there was change back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, when, again, there were protests going on and Congress was forced to act and they made the Civil Rights Act. And, you know, a couple of decades later, they were challenging that they challenged the act. Not in the same rate of time, but nevertheless, you've had folks who lobbied against it, who said that racism no longer exists and we should just move on. And and now you see we were right all along. We were yelling and screaming about this still. I, I feel like there has been a little bit of an awakening, but... And, and let me just limit it to architecture because we, again, are slow to change. When it comes to academia, you have professors who have been there for 30 years, who are tenured, and it's not going anywhere. It's kind of like a judge. They're not going anywhere. And you're going to ask them to change their curriculum. You're going to ask the history professor to change his slides and to include or do research or whatever about architecture that he does not respect. So I don't know how this is going to work. I hope that the deans do listen and they bring in fresh blood and to make the adjuncts permanent to talk to the universities. It's another thing that we talked about too is, is the universities themselves. It's not just the School of Architecture. And that was a very excellent point that is not just the School of Architecture because students, believe it or not, architecture students don't live in the architecture building. They do have other classes that are outside of the school and they have to interact with the rest of the university bodies. So you have to understand that too. That's not just the school of architecture and that the deans not only have to deal with the school but they have to talk to the university as well and that is a huge thing is to ask the deans like listen it's one thing about the school it's one thing about this department it's another thing about the university itself you have to talk to the university also you have to talk to the president of the university and address these things i mean the students can only go so far, but you need to be 
a co-conspirator, not just an ally. You have to stick your neck out and do what you got to do. Also, you have alumni. You know, you can have a large population of alumni who does not believe that the curriculum should not change. So that's another thing, too. You have to understand, like, it just affects everything because alumni pays the school. They get a lot of their donations. This is how, besides tuition, you have alumni. You have powerful alumni. When you think about this, is the alumni, are they diverse? No, they're not diverse. You, you, you understand? So the graduation rate that you have with black and brown students, if you have 50 students that graduated in the program and five of them are black and brown, or even, yeah, let's say eight, eight of them are black and brown, they may not even participate in the alumni association. And if they do, it'll be one, one out of what, 10? That's still a small voice. So we really have to think strategically about how do you change the curriculum architecture? You know, you have your accreditation board, you have your alumni, you have your dean, and then you have the university or institution or college or whatever. What about the schools that don't have a NOMAS? They just have a AIAS. What about that? I can go on and on and on digging into this more and more. But I just want to let everyone aware that this is deeply seated. And it's not going to change overnight. It may be the great-grandkids that may see a significant amount of change. So, and it, it was a pleasure talking to these two ladies. And... Yeah, so, ah, thanks for listening. Here you go. So, Kelsey and Malika. Malika. Okay. I came across you ladies on IG Live. I was just amazed at the conversation and the topics that you're talking about and how it hasn't changed since I graduated in 2005. So that's 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I was shocked about that. I want to talk to you two ladies and just, just conversate about that. So who wants to go first in the introductions? My name is Malika Johnson. I'm going into my fourth year of the Bachelor of Architecture program at RPI. Um, recently elected chapter president of our NOMAS chapter. So I'm originally from Bowie, Maryland, so not too far from Columbia. Oh, okay. So are you, so you were born and raised there? Yeah. So why did you get into architecture? Were you exposed? What was your story? Yeah. So for me, from when I was younger, I had a heavy interest in fashion design. And then I would say around middle school, I went to Canmore Middle there was a competition called Future City. So it was a club and basically the prompt was to design a city for the future. And so with that, there was a writing component, a design component, a bit of a planning component. And I would say that was my first initial exposure to architecture. And that's kind of what sparked my interest. So following that in high school, I was in an engineering program that had a concentration in architecture and we did drafting and we learned drawing and I had an interest from it to an extent from middle school 
just because I enjoy design in general. But I think following that was when I started to actually look into architecture as a career path. What high school did you go to? I went to Flowers, Charles River Flowers High School. It was in Springdale. How many kids were in your graduating class? My graduating class was probably about 600 students. How'd you end up picking RPI? So I actually ended up applying to RPI on whim. It wasn't a school I was looking into, and I kept receiving emails from the school. So I filled out the application. It was a free application, and I filled it out. And then following my acceptance a few months later, I started to do more research on the school, went to visit, and I ended up liking it. Kelsey was actually my host when I went to visit RPI for the first time. Did you have any other schools? Yeah, so it was RPI, it was Pratt, Cornell, Virginia Tech, Howard, Rhode Island School of Design, Syracuse. Did RPI offer you the most money? They did. Nah, that's they how we did. picked the school. RPI offered me the most money. That's how we picked the school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you pretty much stayed on the East Coast with your schools? I stayed on the East Coast, yeah. Or this I applied to was Georgia, applied to Savannah College of Art and Design. Kelsey, you're up. So I'm Kelsey Mitchell. I'm a rising fifth year in the architecture program at RPI. I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina. What else? I don't know what else. How was your high school? My high school was pretty big. So it was... Our graduating class was over 800 people, but it was a pretty competitive environment. And the other thing, which some people know, but I'm a quadruplet, so we're pretty competitive anyways within our family. So it was always really interesting in high school. So there's three more duplicates of you? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Are you all paternal or... Yeah, there's, um, it's three girls and one boy, so we have a brother, but we were all born at the same time, so. How'd you pick RPI? So, when I was applying to college, one of my professors had actually graduated from RPI, and he was, I was in my school's Academy of Engineering, and he was one of the engineering teachers, and he just said, you know, I think you should apply. They have a really good program, that sort of thing. And I kind of brushed it off because I'd never really heard of the school, but I just decided to apply on on a whim. I mean, it was pretty far, like telling my parents, I'm applying to a school in New York. That was kind of interesting, but I just applied, and then I got accepted, and I kept looking into it, and eventually I was just like, okay, I'll go. What about architecture? So I was in my school's Academy of Engineering starting in high school. And one of the classes that we took throughout the Academy of Engineering was called Civil Engineering and Architecture. So that was my first kind of architecture class. But I had done kind of similar to Malika in a way. I had done fashion design and fashion design competitions with kind of an organization that we had at high school. And I enjoyed it, but I wanted to do something I got really kind of hooked on architecture and the idea of building and constructing and designing. And I always figured that even if I did choose architecture, that if fashion design was something that I wanted to pursue in the future, it was something that I could go back to. But I really grasped onto architecture more than I did fashion design at the time. 
What were the other schools? I applied to NC State, UNC Charlotte, RPI, Cornell, and University of Southern California. Oh, so why RPI? Was it a money too or? Um, yeah, it was the money. And then I also been able to short most of the schools, not all of them, but looking at kind of RPI's curriculum, I really looked at the Bachelor of Architecture curriculum before I came in. And I liked their curriculum the most out of any of the schools. Some of the schools kind of focus more on environmental science as opposed to architecture, even though it was an architecture degree. And then some of them just didn't have the classes that I wanted or that I felt would be useful. So ultimately, in addition to money, I liked RPI's curriculum a lot. Did you visit the school prior or? No. Did you guys get any like outside scholarships at all? No. No. I got a couple. Were they architecture related or? No, they were like church community based type scholarships. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Did you guys hear of any scholarships at all when you were in high school? I did. My school would advertise them. It was an assignment for my AP lit class to either apply to a scholarship or to write different versions of your college essays weekly. So that was the exposure to them. Hey, Kelsey, was your high school mixed or was it mostly white or? It was, it was pretty mixed. I mean, there were kids from all different sorts of backgrounds, but it was just a really big school. So Kelsey, when you first got to campus, your freshman, how was that like? It was a little weird just because I'm so used to being around a diverse group of people and seeing a lot of people from different backgrounds. And since I hadn't visited RPI, that was something that I didn't really know going in. So especially like being in class and being able to count like distinctly the number of Black people or people of color. I remember that was a little weird for me. And then in orientation, I remember like talking with my parents and they were like, yeah, there's not a lot of, you know, diverse people that we've seen so far in orientation. It's just like it's, there aren't that many. So it's just going to be an adjustment. So it was a, it was a little bit of a shock. How about you, Malika? I'd say when I first arrived to RPI, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a shock because I knew the stats of the school, but I definitely think it was a radically different experience than I was used to. And I think I knew it was going to be a different experience, which is part of the reason why I wanted to go to RPI, especially being from a predominantly black area. It wasn't really an experience that I've had being in that type of environment as far as school ever. So I wanted to just experience a different culture and attitude as far as the school I went to. And I would say it took me a while to adjust and acclimate to my environment. I think when I went into school, I was a lot more closed off. It took me a longer time to open up to people, interact with people, and to make friends and especially interact with my other peers in architecture. I would say part of it would probably be just because of the environment I was in and it being something I'm not used to in conjunction to 
and a college freshman being on campus for the first time and how they would feel in that situation. Yeah, I remember I was like that too. DC got this me mug thing going on, but I remember people were like, you don't smile. And it came from everybody. They're like, why you look like you're about to beat up somebody? I was just like, I don't know. Like, this is how I look. Oh, and the stereotype that I'm from the South. I don't know if you got that. Believe yeah, it. I did. You're from the I, South. So you're, you have like the Southern accent. So I don't know if you had that experience or not, but. I would get that a lot. Every program's different from freshman year to this past year. How many people have left the program? I should say. You start off with 50, now there's 20 of you. How has that been? I would say with my class, I think most of the people probably dropped out the first or second year. So I would say within that first to second year, I would say maybe around 10 roughly, especially that first year after the first semester. I believe right now only half of the people that were in my studio first year, first semester are still in the program. I would say overall, maybe 12 to 13 within the past four years. Okay, that's not bad. I think my class starting coming in, it was somewhere between like 75 and 80 people. And now we're down to like 50 something. But same with Malika, most of the people that we lost were within that first to second year window. A lot of people we lost First, most people, if they dropped out, it was first year, and it was kind of within the first couple weeks. And a couple people dropped like at the end of the year um, or like at the end of the semester. But a lot, like we lost most of our people first year, and then a couple more second year. And how many black people started off freshman year, and how many are there now? Hmm. My class is small, so, well, not my class, but there were only three Black people in my year to start, and there's, no, 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 just, no, there were more than three, never mind, one, two, three, I think it was six, we started with six, and now we're down to three. So, out of, like, 80 people, there were six, and now, out of 50, there's three. Yes. Okay. How about you, Malika? So for my year, we have, I believe it's eight Black students, and we started with eight, and we still have eight. Oh, great. Education-wise, how has it been? It's been interesting. Okay, so education-wise, as in content we learn or overall experience? Let's do overall first, Mm -hmm. and then we can get specifics. Okay. So I would say overall, I think it's been a pretty good experience within the School of Architecture. I would say I've definitely been challenged and pushed creatively and design-wise. And I think that our dean in particular is very open to feedback from students and he's adamant in acknowledging that there is an issue with sort of the nature and inclusivity in architecture. I think that that's something that he's made a point of integrating into conversations that he has with the student body at large. I would say that application into what we learn 
is kind of where there's a bit of a gap. But I would say in general, as far as education I received, I have mainly positive things to say. Mm-hmm. I think the same. Overall, I think one of the things, and Maliko and I have talked about this, that there's a difference in your experience within the School of Architecture and outside of that. So within the School of Architecture, a very, very positive experience for the most part. I mean, there are things that we could change, like in terms of what we're learning and in terms of encouraging diversity and inclusion. But overall, it's the conversation is always encouraged. And that's something that I appreciate about the School of Architecture and the Dean and kind of the faculty that we have. But I'd say outside of the School of Architecture, it's a different experience. Not to say that it's not to say that it's negative, but it's not the same sort of open community, I think, within the School of Architecture as it is in the Institute as a whole. So overall, it's been good, but I've noticed that there's a difference in what happens for us as architecture students versus what happens for other people, whether they be engineering or kind of sciences and things like that. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I think in the vein of, I think it comes down to leadership and kind of what each, I mean, I feel like each school has a sort of sense of autonomy that each dean can kind of form the school the way they want to and that they can encourage certain ideas and things of that nature. And I feel like for our dean, he's very keen on raising discussions and talking about things that need to be said and if there's something that he's concerned about he's more than willing to listen to the student body or the dean's advisory council or anything like that but for the institute as a whole you know in terms of students bringing up issues to administration about racial injustice or kind of negative things that have happened on campus there's an entirely different reaction and it's not one that you see in the School of Architecture instead of it being more of towards change and encouraging students to continue to have these conversations. It's more of an idea, at least to me, of repressing um, and kind of trying to limit negative feedback in sort of a public space. Is this towards the president of the school or faculty or? Kind of a mix, right? I mean, I feel like a lot of times, I mean, President Jackson does get a lot of, you know, criticism for the things that have happened on campus and the things that have been allowed to happen on campus. But it also comes down to faculty and administration. And I know of like several people who had incidents occur, but nothing has been done and there hasn't really been a conversation. Whereas when things happen within the School of Architecture, we're very keen on tackling those issues. Like I remember my freshman year was when the election happened and they actually stopped studios so that way each professor could kind of talk with students about, you know, trying to keep hope and trying to be really positive even though something negative it just happened and even the day before that there had been a whole discussion about make sure you vote and knowing the importance of voting and things of that nature so there's kind of a divide along how we as students are supported in your different programs i feel very much supported by the school of architecture but i don't know if a lot of students can see that you want to add to that Malika? 
Yeah, I think what Kelsey said, she basically hit it right on the nose. I think it's interesting because at RPI, the School of Architecture seemingly operates as a standalone institution or school within the school. And I feel like because of that, it's very easy for students to ignore everything else, everything else that's going on on campus. It's a bit of a bubble. But I would say for black students on RPI's campus, it's a different story because you can't necessarily ignore other experiences that you could potentially have when you leave out the confines of the green building. That's our building for the School of Architecture. And you can't ignore experiences that your peers have had in, in classes with professors or just overall approaching administration. And I would say that there have been conversations with administration in the past, but I feel like those conversations haven't been backed with enough action or not all the actions that were told that they were. So it's interesting. I feel like my experience within the School of Architecture and then within RPI in general are very different. Would it be a correct statement saying that being in a bubble hurt you at all as a future professional going out into the world? I would say no, because I would say while there is the bubble within the School of Architecture, I think this applies to Kelsey too. The both of us are very heavily involved in the other things that go on on our campus and in a lot of the other Black student organizations. So like the minute we leave out of the School of Architecture, get out of studio, or we aren't in a NOMAS meeting, it's that exposure to everything else. So I feel like it's a balance because while we may not have those same problems in our education while we're in class, it occurs when we get out of class and when, when we interact with our peers or when we're anywhere else on campus or involved in any other club. I agree. I think, I think the only way being in the School of Architecture could be considered a detriment is if you're a person who doesn't kind of operate outside of the school, kind of if your sole involvement is within the School of Architecture, then it's really easy to miss out on the larger issues and things that are happening, whether it be campus-wide or from school to school. But in being involved in organizations outside of the School of Architecture, having friends outside of the School of Architecture, we're kind of um, in the loop and we know when things happen because we're a part of those experiences. We're not just within our little architecture bubble. Mm -hmm. So NOMAS, how did you join and how did you become president? Um, okay, so my freshman year when I first got onto campus, NOMAS and AAS at our school, both chapters have a joint mentor program. So my mentor was Naya Jackson, and at the time, she was one of the students that originally brought RPI's NOMAS chapter back. And so following that, a friend of mine, Samuel Harrison, became their freshman representative. And they would tell me to go to meetings, and I didn't go in the beginning. And then eventually I started going, and I was like, kind of like this. And I would say, especially when I got in freshman year, just to the workload, learning new software. I definitely think a lot of upperclassmen, NOMAS members 
supported me, not just myself, but a lot of the freshman students. They were there to help us, to guide us, to give feedback, and to just share their experiences. And they definitely understood that it was a different environment to be in while adjusting to something new and while adjusting to the way architecture school trains you to think. And so they shared their experiences. They let me know that it wasn't a foreign experience. And then they experienced no mosque in general. So I would say I got involved in the mosque just from the upperclassmen being heavily active with the freshmen. And following that, my third year, this past year, I was treasurer for NOMA, so I ran at the end of my sophomore year. And then I would definitely say I wanted a larger role in the organization, and I had a lot of ideas for the organization, and then that's what prompted me to run for president. How about you, Kelsey? So my freshman year was when the RPI NOMAS chapter was revitalized. So it had been on campus a couple years before, but then the chapter, it kind of died because no one, as far as I knew, no one came to anything. So the spring of my freshman year, so that would have been 2017, um, was when the chapter was reestablished. And so my, one of my mentors, Al Jalil, along with Naya Jackson and Alexis Clark, helped to revitalize the chapter. And then from there, I just started going to meetings, and my sophomore year, I was treasurer of the chapter, so I handled a lot of fundraising and things of that nature, budgeting, and then my junior year, I was secretary, and then this past year, because I wasn't on campus the entire year, I wasn't eligible to hold an office position, so I had to step away. But I still, when I got back to campus this past spring until we had to leave, I attended NOMAS meetings and stuff like that. And so now I'm back on the executive board as secretary. But I just liked, I had gone to AIS meetings and I wasn't really getting anything out of them. And I found that with NOMAS, like we were asking questions that I hadn't really been heard being asked and there were topics being discussed that I didn't really thought about. And then like Algela was asking, you know, what do you want to learn about? What are you interested in? Is there anything we can do to help you? Especially because, you know, as a first year in architecture, they kind of just throw you out there and they're just like, okay, do architecture. And it, it's kind of a lot. So having Nomaz and having him and other people there was really a good experience. And that's kind of why I've stuck with the organization the past four years. Hmm. Did you have a teacher mentor? Yes, we have a faculty advisor, Professor Michael Oldman. He's black? No, he's white. Yeah. Do you guys have any black professors? We do. We have three black professors. The number of black professors has actually grown. I believe Kelsey's year. There was one. There was one. My freshman year, it became two. And then sophomore year, it was three. Yeah. So. You have no idea if they're like tenured or not, right? Professor Titus is tenured. He just achieved tenure. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. And has that helped at all in learning anything or no? Not really, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think so. He also just received tenure. When was it? Probably 
He was away in the fall on sabbatical, so he had just got tenure, and then he came back, and it was on campus, and then everything happened with the virus, and then we weren't on campus. I would say his overall impact within the school is pretty heavy regardless. He's in charge of the first year architecture program, and he has been as long as I can remember and as long as anyone I've talked to can confirm. So I would say his impact is mostly there within the school. Okay. So diving deeper in your courses and whatnot, I know that going back to that IG Live, you guys mentioned not learning more about African architecture or architecture built by Black and brown people. I know for me, architectural history was extremely hard. And it was hard because I don't care about Greek columns. How does that affect my life. I don't care about Mesopotamia or which Notre Dame is the that Notre Dame. I could not relate to it. I never took advantage of study abroad, so it was kind of difficult looking at slides or pictures to really understand or experience that building. Not to mention, it, I felt like this isn't really my culture. I understand the technical aspects of a flying buttress, but how does that save my community? So when you mentioned something similar to that, I don't know if it was the exact same thing I just said, but I'm curious to hear you guys experience with that. So I've, like what I've noticed is that there hasn't been, especially with architectural history and theory there's not a lot that is said about like black people in architecture or black and brown architecture and the times that I do remember it being mentioned it was like here's vernacular architecture in Africa and I was just like okay but like what about after vernacular like where when are we going to talk about that and then I remember and I Malika and I were in this class out of the entire I don't know how many weeks it was, 14 weeks of the semester. Only one of the weeks in the class was about race and architecture. And it was about how architects contribute to the school to prison pipeline. But that was it. It was like, and the class only happened once a week, I believe, once or twice a week for like an hour. And so I was just like, okay, out of the entire semester, the only thing that we can show for talking about black and brown architecture is two hours of talking about school to prison pipeline and I feel like there's a lot left to be said about black and brown architecture I feel like especially African-American architects and indigenous and people of color have offered a lot to the architectural profession but it doesn't get recognized for what it is and I don't feel like we talk about it enough I feel like especially in terms of history, a lot of us would be able to empathize with it and pay attention a lot more if it was relevant to the people. But having to hear about, you know, classic European standards of architecture just continues to whitewash everything. It's not really productive to me anyways. I would agree with that. I would say in architectural history classes, particularly we'd always learn about the same set of architects that are all white males. And 
within that, these are always the names that would be repeated, always the names that would be in the conversations, always the names that they would compare things to and critiques or reviews. And if it weren't for certain, one, personal research, two, certain professors in certain classes just having a different set of curriculum outside of those initial architecture history courses, I would say the overall exposure within the School of Architecture to a diverse set of architects is extremely minimal. It's interesting too what Kelsey was saying about that class because in the class we had <laughs> the minute that it came time for that week that there was a discussion about racial injustice and the impact that it had with architecture and how that related to the prison pipeline as soon as it was time for a set of questions everybody kind of wanted to look at all the black students in the corner and like wait for us and we're like we don't have any questions about this topic and I would say anytime there's a mention of anything having to do with diversity or a black or brown architect or designer that's the tendency within the classes whether it be i don't think there's anything meant by it but passively is something that we all use for sure has that happened in high school for you guys well flowers is a black high school right am i yeah, yeah. okay but for you, Kelsey, has that been weird when you were in high school? I'm just trying to do a comparison. I think there were like a couple times I feel like everyone gets those looks like in history class, whether it be elementary or middle or high school, where where it's the lessons about slavery and everybody turns to the Black people and they're like, I'm sorry. And you know, like that wasn't really what we were looking for, but I think like in terms of learning about African-American history in high school, it was fairly limited to, I guess, what you could consider mainstream. So slavery and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X is kind of about the span or how far we went in terms of discussing African-American history. It wasn't anything really much beyond that and civil rights, but the discussion was fairly limited and I feel like there was a lot more to talk about beyond that but it wasn't ever really covered. So besides that class studio wise how has studio been? The projects you've been working on has there ever been a site where it's a predominantly black neighborhood or predominantly mixed neighborhood? I think go ahead Malika sorry. I would say the closest experience to that would probably be fall of 2019. And I still wouldn't say it was anything near a diverse site. It was in South Troy. So our school was in Troy, New York. It was in South Troy, about 15 minutes down the hill from campus. And I would say it's seemingly mixed, maybe, but I still don't think it's the same as a site that was in a predominantly black area. I don't think there would have been the same concerns necessarily because the way the population is set up, it's pretty split even if not more white. It's more diverse in RPI, but it's still not diverse in the grand scheme of the rest of the world. 
Yeah, I think the same. This past spring, so January 2020, would have been the first time that I had what I would call a diverse site. And even in that same, similar to Malika, it wasn't super diverse. It was in an area that was sort of low income, but most of the low income residents were white. There were a couple African-American residents in the area once we studied, but it was a mainly predominantly white area still, so. Because I remember on the um, IG Live, you mentioned like, I don't know if this was an example of like a yoga studio and it happened and was that? So that the project, the professor encouraged us not to include, to think beyond what you would typically put in a render or what people want to put in a render and he was just saying that you know take into context that it is a low-income area and you do have more than just white people living in the area because in the previous studio review the day before us they had the same site that we did but everybody in the renders according to him was white and doing yoga and walking their dogs and walking their kids and so he was just saying, you know, that's not necessarily what the area is. Yes, there are white people, but there's also other people in the area. And he wanted us to be mindful since it was supposed to be a construction that was affordable, that it could be used for more than just white people, that it can be used for anybody. I'm going to read a little bit of uh, NAB's statement on racial injustice just for people to hear. And then I, I want to know, after I finish reading it, has this been applied already in your education? And how do you foresee them applying this in the future? So this is, I'll try to bridge this as much as I can. The, the National Architectural Accrediting Board is committed to working with the Collateral Organization of Architecture to realize meaningful change. The conditions for accreditation are the primary means by which the NAB reviews U.S.-based programs granting professional degrees in architecture. Mindful that architecture education has a direct impact on the environment we live in, NAB developed with ACSA, AIA, AIS, NCARB, and NOMA the following requirements in the newly adopted 2020 conditions for accreditation. And then it starts to list off as a structure for continuous improvement each accredited program must address. And they list two things. One is the shared value of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And then the second one is the program criteria for social equity and inclusion. So have this been already been applied in your education? And if so, how? And if not, do you think that it can? Okay, so let me, let me, okay, so for example, the shared value of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and then it says, architects commit to equity and inclusion in the environments we design, the policies we adopt, the words we speak, the actions we take, and the respectful learning, teaching, and working environments we create. Architects seek fairness, diversity, and social justice in the profession and in society and support a range of pathways for students seeking access to an architectural education. Yeah, okay, so 
<laughs> it's funny because like I, i'll just read the second part and then i'll i'll say my two cents the program criteria for social equity and inclusion how the program furthers and deepens students understanding of diverse cultural and social context and helps them translate the understanding into built environments that equitably support and include people of different backgrounds, resources, and abilities. So I think within that statement, I would say most of it has been present so far. I would say that part about students understanding and applying is sort of the more foggy area for our school environment. I would say that as far as professors, curriculum committee, the dean of architecture, I would say that generally speaking, I do feel as though they try to implement the things that were stated, but I feel like for me, where I've seen the lack of consideration has honestly been mostly from our white counterparts and our white peers within the School of Architecture. And I think it was really only recently that they took an interest to understanding or acknowledging that you are designing for everyone and that it's your responsibility as a designer or a future architect or a future architectural professional to make sure you understand the way of the world and understand society and what's going on in potential environments that you could be designing in and just with the people that you're designing these spaces for. So I really think it's only recently that students have kind of awakened, so to speak, or decided to even take an interest in that part about understanding and applying. And I would say for me, I feel as though the school has done the things in that statement or tried to implement them. But I think it's interesting because I feel like for me as a black student, I can say that I don't necessarily know the white peers would feel as though they've been exposed to what would even make them factor that. And on one hand, it's not the school's responsibility to expose you to everything because you definitely need to research on your own, read on your own, figure out things on your own, especially wanting to go into the profession of architecture. But I can't 100% say that they would feel as though it's something they've been exposed to. But then on the other hand, if we've been exposed to it, why haven't they necessarily? Because if I feel like I've been exposed to it school environment, others could feel that as well. So I believe it's a mix of what I previously just mentioned about and then just overall negligence to the subject, I would say. Because I think it's very easy, like we were mentioning earlier, to stay inside that bubble as a student. And I think that bubble isn't just with being on campus. I think it's with the world and with the information you take in and the types of spaces that you consider yourself designing for within your studio projects and the type of people that you imagine, like Kelsey was saying in your renders. I think that it's easy to ignore all the other factors that you can and should consider as it pertains to racial injustice and inclusivity and diversity in architecture and architecture education. But I feel like as just students in general, we should want to learn those things and we should take it upon ourselves to learn those things too, regardless of if the school provides it or not. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I think for the most part, the School of Architecture at RPI has done a pretty good job of kind of encouraging these things, especially with urging from the dean and professors and things like that. But I also feel like architecture as a major and as a profession is really competitive. And I feel like a lot of students, and it's very rigorous, and a lot of students just fall into wanting to learn this skill, wanting to, you know, I want my drawings to be the best, I want my renders to be the best. And you kind of lose your sense of kind of social responsibility. And I think that's something that needs to be emphasized a little bit more. I think it's not just about going through the five years and coming out with a degree and being able to say, okay, I know this thing, I know this thing, I know this thing, and being able to say, okay, well, I'm going to pursue licensure, but are you using your degree in a way that helps everyone and that makes, you know, landscape and urbanism and architecture and all these things equitable? And kind of similar to what Malika said, and we actually had this conversation after we released a statement following kind of the protests and the kind of recent surge in kind of racial injustice that we've seen nationwide. And so NOMAS released a statement. And with that statement, we stated that we were going to host the Instagram live event. And I remember telling Malika that I was getting a lot of comments from my peers saying, oh my gosh, this is going to be so good. I've wanted to learn for so long. I'm thinking of being more inclusive in my thesis. I think now would be a good time. And I just remember feeling like, why now, you know, like it takes a certain level of initiative to do these things. And even though it is on the part of the school to make sure that you're educating people, we all have access to the same resources or most of the same resources. And it's a matter of choosing to pursue that extra level of education, choosing to look into how to be more equitable and encourage things like that. So when I, when people were telling me, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for this, and can you send me the notes from the event, I was a little taken aback, just because it's not our job to educate you, but it, there's a personal level of responsibility on each person to pursue that. So the school can do everything that they want to do, but if people don't want to take that information in and they don't take that initiative to find more information or kind of teach themselves certain things, then that's where things kind of lack for me. There's a couple of things um, you guys said, um, going back to Malika and, well, first let me get my own opinion out of that. And that really, that was like also prompted me to talk to you guys and to, to see, yeah, I'm just gonna say it. So I don't, I don't have faith that NAV can successfully pull this through. And this is why I think it's because there's a list of schools that will never lose their accreditation. Like Cornell will never lose their accreditation. Yale will never lose their accreditation. Like it's just, it's facts. And I'm pretty sure they're already implementing these things right now. I don't know how it's going to look for HBCU schools since, I mean, this is just a given. I don't know how this would translate out. Is it going to be, uh, hey, guys, whatever project that they have, let's write a paper about social justice. Just throw in a design statement about that 
and then move on. And one thing that Malika has said is that how do you get your fellow students to understand what's going on, to understand what it means being in a landscape where it's, it's literally designed racism? How do you comprehend that? How do you teach that? And, and intertwine with all the other stuff that they're making you learn. Their core, and then there's fluff, like humanities or something. So I don't see them successfully implementing these things. Yeah, I think I agree. I think it's, it's hard to kind of put these statements out and say, okay, these are the requirements, but how are they being enforced is an entirely different issue. So you know, is the entire curriculum being reformatted or are we just saying, okay, each person needs to have had one studio project that focuses on low-income, you know, African-American urban neighborhoods or something like that. But I think the idea of enforcing it is more of an issue because I think a lot of schools can kind of make the argument that they've already been or that in some ways they've encouraged equity or diversity or inclusion. So trying to put forth this new kind of mandate is a little bit interesting, I think. I agree with that. I think it'll be interesting, especially implementing what that statement entailed, particularly to see how schools will have to or should integrate that into their curriculum specifically and into the tone of their programs and how they teach architecture because it does differ from school to school. I think it would be interesting to see if there is a model that NAB set up to guide each program, but then with that, that also leaves a lot of space for interpretation. So it really comes down to and how NAV enforces it with each school and then how each school kind of takes that and applies those that set of criteria and it's that application from each school that can become very foggy because someone's interpretation of a statement and of a set of rules or criteria can be very different so you now have tens and hundreds of schools they're looking at this and trying to fit this into their program while still remaining, still keeping the integrity and the nature of their program and what makes it unique. So I think it'll be interesting. I'm not going to say that it'll be impossible for every school to have a set standard and a set expectation, but I feel like how that will look different from school to school. And I'm not going to say that's a bad thing, but I think that that also leaves a lot of space for schools to kind of fall short of that expectation. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's, it, was, it was funny because when I was first reading it and I was like looking at you guys' reaction and you guys were like, what are they saying? <laughs> like, I felt like it was this architecture of BS. Like they put <laughs> words together, a bunch of hashtags that they found and they just put it together. I'm pretty sure they spent weeks thing but that statement could apply to anything anywhere ever it wasn't tangible they might as well have put a black square in that statement it really didn't mean 
anything. And I think they were already doing this. I feel like they were, I was talking to one person that felt like they were already talking and timing was just right. But reading that, it wasn't, yeah, it's it's like basically what you ladies had said. So I wasn't losing my mind when I was reading it. That's great. Before I let you ladies go, how did your school handle the pandemic? So we actually, we got sent home. So it just so happened that spring break happened. That's when, so everything started kind of increasing and there was kind of this, I guess like within a couple of my professors had said, you know, anything could kind of happen, but just be aware that we might not be coming back after spring break. So I remember I was working on campus over spring break and I was at work and we got the email and they just started shutting everything down. They were just like the gym's closing, the union's closing, everything is closing. I was an RA and they told us, they were just like, don't worry about it. Normally we'd have to stay and do kind of close out procedures and make sure everyone's out of their room. They were just like, if you are an RA, you take care of you. That's no longer your job. Make you get yourself out. So it was just like chaos. I remember I didn't leave for a couple of days because I needed to get everything packed and then trying to get a storage unit and all that stuff. And then timing getting home because I drive home. But I remember looking outside my dorm room and just seeing like cars and U-Hauls and trucks just parked out front and parents are just trying to throw anything and everything in to get their kids home. So, I mean, it was, it was kind of, if you were on campus, it was kind of hysteria because you were trying to get out before things got worse. Yeah, I would, initially, I was on campus over spring break as well. And initially, the first email we got said that spring break would be extended by week. Then they said spring break would be extended by two weeks that same day. Following that, they said that no one was coming back from spring break. This was the next day. They said no one was returning to campus after spring break. Everyone had to move out of any on-campus residence hall. And I believe they gave people, was it nine days or 10? It was, it was like seven. It was, yeah, it was like nine. It, was, it wasn't that long. Right. And for students to come back to campus, because most students were gone from spring break. So this is for students to come out, come back to campus, figure out travel arrangements, figure out how to get all their belongings from school to home or to wherever they were going. So it was a very quick process. I mean, for move out, I'm a learning assistant and Kelsey is a resident assistant. So we're both student staff and normally for the move out process and the move in process, we have to collect keys or we might inspect rooms for this. It was none of that. Everybody left their keys. They slid it under the door. It was very prompt and there was a sense of urgency. And I would say rightfully so, of course, but at the time, I think for a lot of students on campus, the sense of urgency wasn't necessarily understood. So a lot of students had issues with that kind of week to 10 day turnaround to move out. And I know a lot of students were frustrated because, you know, spring break, we just were dismissed for spring break. And I feel like a lot of people were just like, okay, if we weren't 
going to come back, then we could have been told that before spring break started and, you know, then we could have made arrangements, moved everything at one time. But, you know, a bunch of people went home or went away and then everybody has to come back and get their stuff. So I think in some cases it was a little frustrating. Did the pandemic affect you guys personally at all? So for me, I would say yes to an extent. So my grandmother passed away in April. She didn't pass. So she lives in Jamaica and she had come in March right before my spring break to visit. She didn't pass away from coronavirus, but when she passed away, she went to the hospital and then none of us could see her. And then when she went, that was kind of like the first thing they tested her for before they treated her for anything else. So then following her getting this test and it coming back negative, at that point, they realized there was something that's wrong with her. But then it was really too late for them to do anything else because she started to have a lot of other complications internally that they didn't see earlier on. And for that whole funeral process and everything with that, that was probably at the peak of the virus in this area. So it was definitely hard navigating that. There was a lot of family that wanted to come both here and in Jamaica that couldn't because we could only have 10 people. So I definitely think everything that would come into fruition with the kind of normal grieving process or losing someone or how that works, just having a family member sick or in the hospital or having to lay them to rest. I think it was all a bit more complicated. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. And how about you, Kelsey? No, I haven't been personally affected by it, thankfully. My family's okay, even though we're all um, spread out. For the most part, everyone is good. So it's been pretty good. Okay. I don't think I have anything else. Malika, is your family Jamaican? Yeah, my family is Jamaican. Both sides? No. So my mom's side is Jamaican, and then my father is West African and Thai. So my grandma on my dad's side was Thai, and his father is from Sierra Leone. He was born in Thailand, but he grew up in Sierra Leone. So that's that side. Oh, wow. Mostly with my Jamaican family. What's, what, what part of Jamaica? Montego Bay. Montego Bay. Yeah. Are you guys planning on returning back home or are you going to stay up in upstate and try to get a job? Um, I don't know. I, I've i kind of had anxiety about that just because it's fifth year and I feel like I have to get my life together and figure out what I'm doing. I've thought about pursuing grad school, but I'm still kind of in between. I'm not sure if that's what I want to do 100%, but kind of in between grad school and then just looking for a job anywhere. So I, would I know say Mateo's coming back here. I know that. You don't have to say anything. You're coming back here. See, I'm not sure I'm coming back here. You're coming back here. See, that's the thing. I know I'm not staying in upstate New York. I don't like upstate New York if it wasn't for RPI. I don't think it's a place that I would want to be in. No offense to upstate New York. It's it's fine, but it's not for me. But I'm not 100% sure 
I would come back home. I think I would come back here eventually, but I'm also open to sort of experiencing other places, just not upstate New York. <laughs> yeah. Or not in Troy. I think it would be different if it was another city, but I feel like Troy in particular, I don't think I could stay there long term. No. You you have Jamaican too. Girl, you gonna be in If anything, you'll be like South. You may be in California, maybe because the weather and there's Democrats. I don't know about <laughs> South. Maybe Atlanta. But yeah, you ain't, you ain't gonna stay up in no cold, girl. Mm-hmm. All right, ladies. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Have a good night. You too. Thank you. Bye. Good night. Bye. Good night. Link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespoly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.